0: good morning everyone welcome back to our class on the household codes we'll be wrapping up ephesians today and moving on to another section of the scriptures so you will want to have a bible with you or um, if not a paper physical one one you can turn on on your phone let's begin with an invocation and prayer in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit Amen. amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name we see maybe the most prominent and detailed of the Household Code texts, Of course, in German, Haus Toffel, (house Table. And I don't want to do a thorough review by any means, but simply want to bring you back up to speed. If you look at Ephesians 5, and maybe particularly at just verse 21, which is the tail end of a lengthy sentence, you see Paul saying... Um, submitting to one another out of reverence for christ so this is according to our most general and foundational vocation and we're using that in a technical sense a theological sense vocatio this holy calling of god that most central of all vocations is the vocation as christian and so as christian we submit ourselves to one another in love. And this can take on any number of forms. If you want to read Luther on this, he's very good. You could look at uh, Christian Freedom, where he talks about being utterly free toward God on account of justification in Christ, utterly bound to one another out of love. And so, completely free, completely bound. And he has a lot of fun with this kind of paradox. He does the same thing with worship, by the way. He says, Luther was a liturgical uh, conservative, and so he says, says, look, we're set free in Christ to worship in any way we might want, but out of love for one another, we ought to bind ourselves in unity to those who have gone before. And only where there's serious error or items and parts of worship that obfuscate the gospel should we respectfully remove those and reform liturgy. So this idea of free toward God vertically but in submission to one another in love is here laid down foundationally by St. Paul. Now if that's all you had though, you might imagine that Paul has hereby destroyed the entire order of creation such that all my children would need to learn when I tell them, hey, you, turn off the TV hey, other you, go set the table, they'd say, no, Father, you need to submit to us out of love for Christ. (laughs) That's what Ephesians 5.21 says. So what we want to see here is that while we have this general call in our vocation as Christians to submit to one another in love, that does not thereby destroy the order of creation. And that's why what immediately follows is this treatment of the three core vocational pairs. And again, those are husband and wife, parents and children, and then slaves and masters. Now, a couple of key points that we can simply draw out by way of macro themes that we've looked at, and that is that vocation and these offices, these six offices or three pairs, are all built upon the foundation of Christ and of the Holy Trinity. So you can think very, very specifically of Christ and his love for the church being the model both for the husband's love and headship for his, over his wife and for his wife, And also, then the church's response of submission and respect for uh, Christ being the model for the wife's submission and respect for her husband. So, you can see that what underpins that is this Christological reality. It's also important because it means we're not far from forgiveness. And that's what we need. When we look at these vocational, when we look at these household codes, we look at what God asks of us, it's a big ask. For sinners and we don't live up to it so much so that when Luther addresses in the small catechism what sins we should specifically go and confess individually to the pastor he says we ought to consider our place he better translation our station in life according to the Ten Commandments so maybe you're living you're having such a pious week no real sins come to mind and then, sudden. <laughs> and then, and then you uh, you remember, oh yes, I'm a husband. How did I fail my wife or fail to do my duty? Um, and that could take on two forms, couldn't it? How did I neglect her when I shouldn't have, or how did I indulge her when I shouldn't have? Ah, and. Wives, same thing. Was I, how did I respect him? Did I maybe respect him with lip service only? While well, my heart was far from that. Maybe even a little tinge of mockery. So we have endless things to confess. Of course, parents and children do the same. Parents always think to themselves, despite my best intentions, it's not going as well as I had hoped. And isn't it interesting that every generation, every single generation, without fail, you go, I'm not going to make the mistakes that my parents made, only to make a new set of mistakes, only to have your own children complain at how they were raised and assert with fist in the air, I'm not going to make the same mistakes that my parents made, and so it goes. So this is fertile ground for recognizing our sin, our sins and our sinful condition that's also the beauty of it being predicated upon this foundation of christ and his church forgiveness is as near to us as vocation itself is so vocation leads us not only into a an awareness of sin and a repentance for how we fall short but a recognition of christ's mercy that covers all our sins and does so in such a way that he cleanses our hearts and sets us free to re-engage the task re-engage as we're being conformed into the image of him and his church. The same thing of course is true when we looked last week at children and parents. That's the beginning of chapter 6 and here the model of uh, the, the heavenly father and his son and of course we ourselves and our children. Children first to obey parents. We talked about the parents as Luther likes to use the language of the masks of God that the uh, that the office of parent is the closest office to that of God himself because it is through the office of parent that he sees to it that new life is nurtured and fed and clothed and bathed and sheltered and brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and all that other good stuff. And then fathers here in particularly are in view. Again, I think this applies generally to both parents, and we made that case last week, but fathers particularly in view because the buck ultimately stops with fathers. And this is a universal, that with privilege comes responsibility that old adage um and this there's a if not identical a parallel sense in which okay husband you're the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church which means that yes you have headship leadership authority but you're also the one to blame if it goes sideways and you're the one to fix it if it's going sideways and that's within your power to do. And so the same thing falls on fathers here, where fathers have the ultimate oversight for the raising of their children. And again, there's two admonitions here. One negative, not to provoke your children to anger. The idea is here to you know, not embitter them against you and against authority, and the godliness you're trying to raise them up in. So that's art, not science, as you all know. Um, who have had children or have them presently. And then rather positively to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we talked at some length, I think, about household devotions and um, the, the sort of rhythm of life as Christians given to us in the scripture where on a daily basis morning and evening prayer punctuated by meal prayers and then as that flows into a weekly schedule making sure the family's together in church again we're talking ideals here okay and we're talking about what God would have and so I understand that here in 21st century America it seldom looks so neat and tidy but the word of the Lord endures nonetheless And now we transition today then to the third pair, slaves and masters, which maybe we have to say a few prefatory remarks, although I hope not so much. I think a loose translation of this is kind of managed and managers, employers and employees. That would probably be parallel. This kind of slavery of which Paul is speaking is not identical to Civil War era slavery on the one hand, on the other hand, we think we're a lot freer than we actually are. And that should, we should take a little note of that also, maybe especially on Independence Day, lest we uh, say with the Jews, we've never been slaved by anyone, even as they're occupied by pagan Rome. <laughs> and we ourselves as Americans have never been enslaved by anyone, even though we all have mortgages and many credit card debt and uh, yeah stop paying your mortgage and see how free you are to continue to live there so there are there are some nuances here and i it's not my intent in this class to do some kind of apologetic for this even i think in its crassest form paul just looks at this as a reality in the fallen world and it's he's not going to be the one to fix this obviously we can pull in uh Philemon and some additional writings where Paul urges Christians not to hold slaves, to free their slaves. But if that's, a, if that's an impossibility or won't be done, Paul just looks at it as, hey, this is life in the fallen world. How do we conduct ourselves? And so I think we have much to glean here when we think in terms of employee, employer, or manage. Because very frequently, you know, if you're in management, you've got people underneath you, but you've also got people above you. And so you have both of these roles here laid out. All right, um, let me pause here and see if you have any questions or if there's any clarification that I can offer uh, uh, before we move into the new material, chapter 6, verse 5. Okay. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Who, by contrast, would be the heavenly master? Our Lord Jesus. Jesus. This is in the first place why slavery in the the biblical way of looking at things doesn't take on the necessarily negative connotation it tends to take on maybe in our minds in this country on account of our past. We are all slaves of Christ. And he is our master. The language frequently says like bondservant of Christ Jesus in English I think that's maybe the King King James version I think servant might be the ESV although I don't know I'm not trying to besmirch any one translation but just the the raw crude language is slave of Jesus Christ the the apostles see themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ we all do and should and that's healthy and good and to see him as our master a benevolent master to be sure but an absolute master and of course, there's a, lot of be, there's a lot of fun to be had here because there's a complex theology. There's, as with so, much, so many of the articles of faith presented to us in the scriptures, there's a paradox when you line these up. On the one hand, Jesus can contrast the relationship between slave and master with the relationship of father and son and denounce the relationship of slave and master. Why? That's based upon performance, and you don't remain in God's house on the basis of your performance. So not slave to master, performance-based relationship, but rather father to son, a relationship based on love, not performance. And so, you know, that, we have that strand in the teaching of the scriptures, but then we also have this apostolic strand where it's just no problem whatsoever in seeing him as our master, we as his slaves and that it is our pleasure to do his bidding nothing more nothing less and in fact that's really at the heart of the apostolic office that then becomes the office of the holy ministry is the whole goal is to do nothing more nothing less than our lord jesus himself would have us do to be slaves of christ Okay, so slaves obey your earthly masters, immediately bringing to mind this deeper pattern that the very essence of being a Christian is to be a slave of Jesus Christ. He also, in this way, purchases us. And that's the language you get in Scripture, that the language of redemption is frequently and commonly the language of purchasing a slave, so he purchases us, not with gold or silver, but with his own precious and holy blood. Thus, the scriptures can say, you are not your own. The implication being, it's, you're not here to do your own bidding. You belong to him. It is your goal to do your master's bidding. He has purchased you and he's of course gracious and benevolent so all of these things are meant to come to our mind and here too we see the Christological foundation of vocation slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ so there's the model and as we've looked in, in these other vocations too, there is this idea that we're not, and I think it becomes clear, if not here it becomes clear in one of the other texts on the household code, that the service is not rendered to the man who is our master per se, but in rendering faithful service to him, we are in fact rendering faithful service to Christ. So we talked about this principle at length. This is one of the most freeing and beautiful and joyful and delightful and non-toxifying aspects of vocation. Because whether it's tension between husbands and wives or tension between parents and children or tension between employer and employee, that actually has nothing to do with anything. That's to be entirely ignored while you faithfully do your biblical duty in worship to God, in worship to Christ, as your priestly sacrifice. So the, the wife doesn't say, well, as soon as my husband gets his act together, I'll act like a wife. That, that will happen precisely when. Never. Nor the flip side does the, does the husband say, you know, I'll start to love my wife as Christ loves the church as, as soon as she starts singing hymns of praise to me. And that's going to happen precisely never so what the husband needs to do is love his wife even if she's unworthy of that love because that is precisely his love and worship of Christ and the same is symmetrically true for the wife who is called to respect and submit to her husband because there is worship of Christ not because he's worthy of it or unworthy of it or but out of worship for christ and so here too then we're going to see that slaves are called to obey earthly masters as they obey their spiritual master and in fact we're reminded of this component that we render service to one another not because of the worthiness of any person but because of the worthiness of christ by the way this same principle is at the heart of the office of the holy ministry john chapter 21 remember peter do you love me Yes, I love you, feed my sheep. And this goes on three times. There's a restoration going on there, of course, by the charcoal fire, as John points out, the same image of the charcoal fire by which Peter denied him three times. So there is a restoration going on there, but there is also a bestowal of the office of the holy ministry. And one of the fascinating things that Jesus says there is he says, do you love me? Yes, I love you. He doesn't say, okay, well then go ahead and worship me. He says, feed my sheep. So the entire, the entire pastoral office is predicated, if you love me, Jesus says, then love these others. Feed them, tend them, care for them, right? So it's love directed. It's love that really is directed at Christ and flowing through Christ that Christ wants then spilled over and directed toward his sheep, so that the way to love Jesus is to love his sheep. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's the same exact principle at the heart of the pastoral office. I always like to share that my first year we were sitting in a large auditorium. My class in seminary was about 90. I think the classes in seminary are a fraction of that, nearly a third right now. And one of the well-intentioned speakers, not a regular prof, said, gentlemen, gentlemen, if you don't love people, then you're in the wrong place. To which, like, ninety percent of us were like slumping <laughs> in our seats. Like, <laughs> we kind of think people are the problem, uh, including these people. You know, this is not if if my ministry is going to be predicated upon my love for people. Yikes! I'm in the in the wrong place. But thankfully, we are all saved by Christ and John 21 and some better theology. Do you love? It, it would have been a better thing to say if he came in and said, "Gentlemen, if you don't love Christ, you're in the wrong place." Because it is the love of Christ that's going to carry you through when the sheep that he gives you aren't worthy of that love. You know, when there's a nasty voters meeting, or they, you're mistreated, or there's scandal and conflict in the church, that's precisely when they need you to love them, and you're only going to do that if you love me, right? So this is such a beautiful freeing thing. And this is the way that, you know, again, you're not going to like save every relationship doing this because it takes two people committed to this vision who are willing to do this and willing to remain faithful. Anytime there's, anytime there's a child who wants out, there's nothing you can do about it. Or a parent that wants out, there's nothing you can do about it. A spouse that wants out, nothing you can do about it. But insofar as you can, you can silo off, this is what the Lord would have me do. Thus, I'm going to do these things in sacrifice to him, in love for him. Does that make sense? All right. So yeah, you, you don't look at your boss and think, gosh, that guy sitting in the corner office assigning me all his, all his work to do and taking all the credit for it. I really love him and want to serve him. I mean, that happens precisely never. But you go, this is what Christ would have me do. And I love him because he first loved me and laid down his life for me. Now you've got a way out, and now you've got a way forward. And you're not feeling like a toady or a suck-up or a uh, you know, foot mat or whatever else. You're sitting there going, no, this is an honorable and holy and priestly calling, conducting myself in this way. So yeah, we service, uh, we offer our service with a sincere heart as we would Christ and then verse 6 we're just picking up it is Paul so we're still on the same sentence not by the way of eye service as people pleasers but as servants of Christ doing the and again there guess what it is it's slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And there's, there's the Sadies the seat upon which I just preached this little mini-sermon to you. There it is, straight from the pen of the Holy Spirit. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does this he will receive back from the Lord. And there's a beautiful promise. I've sometimes, heard the, I've sometimes heard the gospel preach that God doesn't keep track of the score. And that's comforting if you're consider, considering your debts, your sins, how far in the red you are. But it's only one half of the gospel. The other half of the gospel is precisely that God does keep score, not of your sins. But of every good work that you've ever done, no matter how tainted with sin, it's cleansed by His blood, no matter how worthless in your eyes or the eyes of the world, it's of infinite and priceless worth in His eyes, such that He marks it down and He will not even let a cup of cold water given in His name to a little child go without due reward. So all of this matters. And that's really the point of these texts, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, okay? And that's true whether it's in this life or the next. You, in the same way, like, you never really get away with sin, you never really lose your reward. It's all entirely meaningful, entirely worth it, and I think that that in our nihilistic culture and age where we've been taught at least subliminally to think that it's all meaninglessness and purposelessness and it doesn't have an effect and if it isn't of immediate, pragmatic, tangible, measurable benefit, it's not of value. All of this is nonsense and all of this is the spirit and teaching of this age. We want to conduct ourselves before Christ knowing that he sees all and rewards all. And as we walk with him in repentance, he sees all and forgives all. So there's two sides of that gospel coin. And this is of great comfort and encouragement. Whatever good you do, and it's true in this vocation, it's true in any vocation, this you will receive back from the Lord. And that's true whether you, whether he is a slave or free. Just finishing out Paul's thought in verse 8. So he's going to transition then to masters and what he requires of them in that particular half of the vocation. But here's the point. like God doesn't care. I know this is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we're so egotistical and wound up about things that really don't matter in God's eyes. And that is, that is he doesn't frankly care whether you're a slave or free. He cares about you receiving his love and being conformed into his image. That's what he cares about. And that can happen just as easily as a, whether you're a slave or a master. And they both are governed the same way that if you conduct yourself properly, you will be rewarded. So you don't lose anything. This is great gospel comfort, and this is great incentive um, to just simply do the right thing and entrust yourself to the hands of the Lord. Okay, I have a hand up front here. One second, we've got to migrate the microphone up to you. We have one of our speediest microphone handlers today. I spoke too soon. <laughs> Please.
1: I had some rascally students in my classroom of many years of teaching. Mm-hmm there actually were children who said, why, why do I have to obey you? Right. And I finally came up with, and there's a sequence, fancy word, hierarchy, of, to answer that. Why? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I came up with safety, to have order, to have safety, and to get something done. Mm -hmm. The last idea was new for me, that I came up with somewhere. I don't know, and, and, and again, the, the question of somebody uh, <clears throat> sipping coffee in the harbor again. <clears throat> what, makes, what makes the Father God think he can put these um, demands on us? Who does he think he is, <laughs> is the way it was ah. said.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, he's only the one who made us all and made the heavens and the earth. Yeah. Who is he to dictate how any of it should be run? Yeah, it's a good point. And I think I think a lot of what what we've seen, and, and sadly, I think, and largely unintentionally, we've seen the church just acquiesce to this, sort of like the frog boiling in the pot. Which, by the way, I don't even think is true. I think frogs are smarter than that, but we're not. <laughs> and that is... Uh, that is, when you have a society that rejects God, these become legitimate questions of, of authority. Why would I obey anyone, ever, other than if it serves my own best interest? But then it's all entirely arbitrary, seemingly. There's no structure, so if we can just get enough votes, we can move the arbitrary goalposts a little bit. And then in the meantime, it's just about like staying out of trouble but otherwise doing whatever I want to do, it makes for an instantaneously self-centered and self-ish culture. The second you get rid of God, that effect has its, does that sound familiar? A selfish and self-centered culture? No. That uh, is what happens when you get rid of God and you lose all this This higher uh, meaning and purpose and you suffer under it I mean that's the thing all these false idols and, and false constructs we come up with are their own punishment as people are just absolutely miserable today in the quote unquote utopia they themselves designed people are absolutely people are told to hey create yourself be whoever you want to be and they do and they're miserable and wretched uh, that's, the, that's just the modern version and manifestation of idolatry and of course it leaves us empty and broken. So, thank you for your comment. The, the hierarchy within the Trinity itself is underpinning the hierarchy within the ordering of creation. Very briefly again, in terms of ontology, the being or essence of the three persons, they're entirely equal. They're all equally divine. But when they go about interacting, there is an economy or an ordering. This reality of the Trinity, I mean, for example, the Father begets, the Son doesn't beget, He's begotten. The Spirit neither begets nor is begotten, but proceeds. The Son prays to the Father. The Father doesn't pray to the Son. The Son becomes man and obeys the Father's will. The Father doesn't become man and obey the Son's will. So you see that there's an economy and an ordering. This reality within the Holy Trinity himself is reflected in the order of creation, such that man, woman, uh, husband, wife, parents, children, slaves, masters are all equally human beings created by God, all equally valued and redeemed by the blood of Christ. Their ontology, essence and being is all 100% equal but there is an economy and ordering to which God calls us to and that completely parallels the Trinity itself. So that's the origin of all of this. You get rid of that, you get rid of this you have chaos. Okay so let's just round out the, uh, the little section here Verse 9, masters, now in view, masters, do the same to them. What is that? To carry out your vocation and responsibility as if doing it unto the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good you do to your servants or slaves, you will receive it back from the Lord. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Here is just another beautifully freeing aspect of this is if you understand vocation properly, you understand how short life is and how little God asks. I think we tend to look at it so egocentrically that we go, I I would have to be a slave for 40 years? I'd rather be dead than that. That sounds terrible. Okay, you you can be a slave for 40 years rendering service to the Lord pleasing him, only to be swept up into eternity for what, 40 years? Yeah, no. 40,000 years? Yeah, no. Forever and ever, a blessed child of God. This is the time in which he is conforming us into the image of his son that we might inherit eternity. I always use the analogy of, you know, let's say you do absolute bare minimum Christianity, you pay no attention to this and go, "Ah, I'm just going to be an American who believes in Jesus do everything contrary to what the scriptures say. I'm still going to go to heaven because we're saved by grace alone through faith alone apart from works on account of Christ alone. Okay, so bare minimum Christianity, you're in heaven, that's right, and you're, here's, here's you as a, as a chalice, and your chalice is going to overflow with the grace and goodness of God. You're going to be utterly filled with all the blessings of heaven. But as you follow his will in his way and are ever conformed into the image of, son, of his son, you transition from one glory to another, as St. Paul says. I'm going to use the analogy of the chalice. You become an even larger chalice. You have more understanding. You have more capacity. You've lived more of life faithfully. You've fought more of the battles. You've touched more lives around you in a godly way. You have a larger chalice. So you, so you get up there. This is you versus you in this thought experiment. You get up there and it's the same you and you're chalice runneth over, but it's bigger, isn't it? It's able to receive more, and understand more, and enjoy more. And that's a lot of what this life and what vocation is about. We are the clay, he is the potter, and he's shaping our vessels larger and larger, contrary to our will, (laughs) because we don't sign up for crosses and afflictions. Nobody says, hey, I'd like a little more suffering. Nobody signs up and says, you know, I... I've really always wanted to have a great family life, so could you please give me the exact opposite. But God afflicts and lays these crosses and burdens upon us precisely in order to develop and grow us. I mean, There's this beautiful statement in Article 11 of the Formula of Concord, it's one of the most beautiful statements in all of the Book of Concord, where it talks about God before the foundation of the world, loving us in Christ Jesus. Determining to save us in Christ Jesus, to blot out our sins, and then de- determining like a loving father what crosses and afflictions he's going to lay upon us in order to conform each one of us uniquely according to our personalities to be conformed in the image of his son forever and ever. I and mean, this is where vocation shrinks. And you just go, okay, I don't." I, the assignment isn't to do this forever and ever. The assignment is to do this until death do us part, or I'm too old to work, or my children are independent, and, you know, these kinds of things. It's a a short, short time in this little shack that we have, and God is doing profound work, and it's ironic. The very things that we're most likely to count as our problems are, in fact, the very things that God is intentionally using to grow. In other words, they're not the problems, they're the cure to the problems the problems we don't even see and what we reckon as problems are in fact his cures to the problems we don't yet recognize now hindsight can give you that a little bit wisdom and humility can give you that a little bit but i think it's not revealed to any of us fully until we're on the other side and you go aha okay So this is the beauty of what God is calling us to and the beauty of seeing his hand at work in our lives. So, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. That is to say, exactly as you conduct yourself in a master, so your master will conduct himself toward you. In other words, be a master in the image and form of the one who is your master and theirs christ jesus so we wrap up now all three pairs of the chief and primary biblical vocations with christ woven all the way through with these great comforts hopes and helps in terms of our vocations as we endure them and go into them and then with this knowledge that wherever vocation is there christ is and wherever christ is there the forgiveness of sins is And there is blood that cleanses us from all the ways in which we've failed at these vocations and failed to grow and failed to conform. We're forgiven, but we're still called because that calling is precisely what's best for us now and for all eternity. That calling is precisely what's medicinal for us. Let me pause there. I've been doing a lot of talking. I apologize for that. Let me see if you have any thoughts, comments, uh, disagreements. Welcome, as long as they're not uh, correct. <laughs> <laughs> Just easy.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, slaves obey your masters when your masters tell you to lie,
0: cheat, steal, etc. Great point. problem. That same concern as with... Obeying your father if your father is going against the word of the Lord. Can you just talk to that again? Yeah, sure. So one one of the limits that run through all the vocations, and indeed they run through the spheres of what we would call church and state as well. It's just a universal rule that we are called to obey God and not man. So if man commands something that God forbids, we're duty bound to follow God, not man. If man forbids something that God commands, we're duty-bound to obey God and not man. So that's a governing principle that's just simply universal and all the way through. Absolutely right. Any other thoughts? That was a good one. Thank you. There's a hand in the back.
2: One of the things I always think about is when you say things in here that sound so simple and true, it's like, "Oh, if the whole world could do this, it'd be great, like mm. for marriage. yeah, and one of the things that just makes me sad is, statistically, Christian marriages aren't that much more successful than non-Christian marriages. Mm-hmm. And part of it, if you know ninety five percent of Christian marriages lasted forever. The world couldn't help but say, they got something right. I, let's look at that closer.
0: Absolutely. And
2: it's really hard out there in the world with friends or whatever to talk about marriage when it's like, oh, yeah, you you do you. If that's the way you want to do it, great. But mm-hmm. it doesn't change anything for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's, that's my question is like out here in the world, how do you um, – even though we're sinful and we're trying – is that what you say to someone? You know, I'm sinful, but I'm still trying.
0: Yeah, it can be. It can be. I think, I mean, to come up with like a really poignant, concrete example, it would be, you know, I don't know. Maybe women are talking and one of their husbands wants to do something that they don't want to do. And then they say, OK, well, I, I gave in and did what he wanted to do. It wasn't contrary to God's word. Well, why, why on earth would you give in? Why didn't you dig your heels in? You know, why didn't you give him what for? And um, it's like, because I'm a Christian, because this is what God calls me to, because there's a, in the same way that there's a beauty in headship and bearing that responsibility, especially if things go south, there's a beauty in being submissive and just saying, hey, I'm entrusting myself to the Lord and fulfilling this task. But to your broader point, I mean, this is exactly the way in which Christ calls us to, we've been so worried about self-righteousness, we've really... We've really gone off the rails in my estimation. Because Christ says to let your light so shine before men that they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It, that's exactly what you're describing. Christian marriages are no better off because Christian people look at marriage as fundamentally no different than the world. And so that's just what happens. I think I think one of the most inspiring things that, that we can do in, in our really like broken system and and irreparably messed up social order is that even if you can have this perfect marriage or this perfect relationship with your children or this perfect example set as uh you know you're an employee of the month every year or something the 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 point is not to like give up and say okay well it's a lost cause or okay i blew and botched that the point is to Follow the Lord and follow his way, and you give incredible example to others. There are examples of the saints, um, like where, the, where one of the spouses will apostatize, but remain in the marriage and be abusive and neglectful and everything else imaginable. Now, I mean, look, not physically abusive to where it's like harm to the wife or the child, like that kind of thing is a different, you know, put a little asterisk there and have to talk in more detail but where the saint just says, hey, my vocation is to love this person in the ordering that God has given me, and I'm going to do that. And that is a light that shines to other people because they go, how on earth is he? I mean, by all, because the marriage is a disaster, and everybody knows it, and everybody sees it, but they see a Christian man or a Christian woman doing her duty and it's beautiful and amazing and remarkable and it's such a testament to against the culture of like selfishness hey if you're not happy get out since we did happiness become the goal thought holiness was the goal and if we would look at life more like holiness rather than happiness like we'll be happy later and even that's the wrong word because happy is like happenstance and chance and light and fluffy That's why the bible never really talks about happiness positively it always talks about joy because joy goes deeper than sorrow You can be going through the most miserable thing in the world and not feel happy in the least, but still retain joy because you know the promises of God that the wrongs will be righted, the dead will be raised, the world will be renewed. You can have and retain that joy. So, yeah, this is, I mean, this is my encouragement. It's like you look at your life and you say, well, I am where I am. I've made the decisions that I've made the decisions. This is the the shape. Now what? And the answer isn't just don sackcloth and ashes and weep and give up. It's, okay, what has God called you to? Let's get going. Let's begin. And let's shine in whatever ways we can shine in that respect. That, again, we might have something to offer the world. If Christianity is no different than the world, then the world doesn't go, oh, there's a light up on the hill. I wonder what it's like up there. kind of looks nice. It's dark down here, and I'm tripping and falling and hurting myself all the time. Maybe I'll go up to that city on the hill and just see what's up. And that's what the church has to be. And we can't let the 20th century Lutherans tell us that it's self-righteous to do precisely what Jesus gives his church to do. So, and when you come up to that light, what you find is not self-righteous people. You find humble people who are going about their task of trying to be different than the world and fighting their flesh and fighting the world and fighting the devil. And you find humble, earthy saints who are repentant sinners, covered by the blood of Christ. And you go, my goodness, that's attractive. So I think that's, that's precisely the goal. Anyway, I'm sorry, I waxed a little eloquent there more than I wanted to. Maybe not so eloquent, just long. Uh, but thanks for the opportunity. Okay, anything else we want to touch on? There's a hand in the back.
1: Yeah, well, we see this place, faith, as a refuge because outside... Of our church out in the world at large it's getting crazier and crazier and you know just to I feel like we're being attacked constantly and the other night on TV I saw this woman who said I'm not a person I'm a bird (laughs) and I'm an avian and you may use the pronouns L and M with me Mm. and I'm neither male nor female Mm. and the guy said Go lay an egg, <laughs> and my point is, how did that girl get to that point? No. I mean, how, what, what have we done to our country?
0: Yeah, and I, I, mean, I, so I think there's two things we need to do in that respect, and oh, Luther's great on this. The apo- the church fathers are great on this because they're dealing with paganism and insanity. I mean, the stuff, the stuff that they were doing in the ancient pagan world is every bit as insane. I'd tell you about some of it, but you probably want to fire me. I mean, it's, it's really <laughs> gross and insane stuff that they were doing in the ancient world. I mean, transsexuals are nothing new. Uh, homosexuality is nothing new. pederasty is nothing new. Um, so we want to do two things as the church. While the rest of the church in the West waffles and caves and blesses it, and apostatizes. We want to stand against that just rigid as steel and not bend one inch on the doctrine. Luther would describe that as like the vertical dimension, the Word of God dimension. Like, you can't change the Word of God because you're not authorized to do so. And to do so is in fact you can't. I mean heaven and earth is gonna pass away, not that word of God. So this is not within our freedom to be like, well, Paul was a misogynist, so I guess we should do it differently. Like <laughs> that's just a version of insanity. Okay. So so no, we're gonna be completely rigid on that. But and that's the first principle, and that's the kind of like church militant perspective. But that's only half the coin. The other half of the coin is we need to have an, our eyes out for individuals who are shattered by this system. So look up bird lady in 10 or 20 years. That's, that's the people we need to have our eyes out for, who bought the system, believed the system, and it destroyed them and their lives. That's who Christ wants. Those are the people right for the kingdom. That's when Christ looks out, and he doesn't see the, the religious elite like we would see, like, hey, that guy's got an education, that guy's got money, and that guy could, you know, she's got real energy, and wow, she could be the head of the Sunday school. That's We, we don't look at things the way Christ looks at things. When he says the field is ripe for harvest, he is looking at... The poor and the lame and the blemished and the crippled and the people who are the spiritual equivalents of that. And he's going, these are the people who are looking for an out. This system has not worked for them and it's trashing them. And they've done everything that they we're told to do by the pagan system and it's destroyed them and their lives. And the church comes along and goes, it hasn't destroyed anything. Christ can heal you and cover those sins and lead you back to health and wholeness just as it has all of us. And we're all in process. Nobody says, hey, I got it. I forgot it all figured out. I'm completely healed. We're all in pro- process here at this hospital getting better. Even the physicians who go around treating are themselves being treated. <laughs> that's the nature of this hospital. But that's the second goal. The second goal is, is that we fight militantly and uncompromisingly against the poisonous lies and ideas of this world, that we not become loveless or cold, but rather Paradoxically, we flip the switch entirely the other way and are overflowing with love and with mercy and with charity toward the individual people who are mangled by this. And our invitation needs to be of one to them of we're not compromising on right or wrong, but non judgment and acceptance and drawing in. You know, Jesus could do both. That's the remarkable thing about Jesus. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, Jesus. It's also the Jesus that somehow sinners and tax collectors want to hang out with and aren't immediately put off by his heirs of piety because he doesn't have any heirs of piety. He's just earthy and real and holy and merciful. And that's exactly what we need to aspire to be as church. As we move forward, we want to have those two things in mind. And if you look, if you look at, the wor- at the church that's going after the world, those two things are usually flipped. They're usually inverted. They're going to waffle all over the place, and then they're going to become militantly intolerant to anyone who doesn't accept their narrow version of tolerance. So there's an inversion there. Anyway, I see that I'm up at time and rambling a bit. But thank you so much for the, the comments, the, the stimulating thoughts. Next week, we're going to just take a different angle at it. We're going to be in uh, either Colossians or Titus. I haven't decided yet. have a whole week to figure it out. But we're going we're to just take all of this from a slightly different angle and see what the scriptures have to say and what the Holy Spirit has to give. The Lord be with you.